Hello and welcome. I'm Sophie Harrison, and this is the Dogwood Podcast. We've got an important story to uncover together in this first episode of 2018. But first, I've got a quick update about some podcasting changes we're making in the new year. It's been one year since we launched the Dogwood Podcast. We've loved making and getting to share our first 10 episodes with you. We got to talk to awesome people like Nisconlith Chief Judy Wilson and economist Robin Allen. We got to help British Columbians navigate a confusing provincial election. And we got to bust some of Kinder Morgan's most prevailing myths. We know one of the things Dogwood does best is to shine light in the shadows. So that's why Dogwood is changing up our podcast format for the new year. So join myself and my Dogwood colleagues, Kai, Ari, Lisa, or Christina, at the end of every month as we dig deeper into one of the biggest stories of that month. Stories that may have been underreported by the media, skewed by politicians or industry, misunderstood by the public, all with a connection to this beautiful province we call home. We'll bring in more experts and guests to help wade through the bullshit and get to the truth. And we'll try to be more than a podcast where we're able to provide opportunities to be part of the solution and take action in your community. So with that, it is my pleasure to welcome you to this new and improved Dogwood Podcast. On January 6th, a cargo ship collided with the MV Sanchi, an Iranian-owned oil tanker carrying light crude condensate from Iran to South Korea. The collision happened in the East China Sea in open water 300 kilometers from Shanghai. In the days that followed, only one body was retrieved while the ship's other 31 crew members remained missing. Chinese, South Korean, Iranian, and American rescue crews desperately tried to approach the burning tanker, despite the deadly risks of toxic vapors and a possible explosion. On January 10th, part of that tanker did explode. Then, on January 13th, one week after the initial collision, a rescue team was finally able to board the ship. They retrieved two bodies from the deck, but were forced to flee poisonous fumes after only half an hour on board. The Sanchi eventually sunk just hours after this rescue team retreated. All 32 crew members have now been declared dead. And even though the ship is now below the surface, it continues to inflict damage. Its light crude condensate cargo is leaking into the ocean. The oil spill last we heard is more than 101 square kilometers. That's almost the size of the entire city of Vancouver. It's the biggest oil spill since the Deepwater Horizon in 2010 and the largest oil tanker spill in a quarter century. This incident feels a little too close to home for British Columbia. We're currently facing Kinder Morgan's proposed expansion, which would increase oil tanker traffic through Burrard Inlet by seven times. That means 400 oil tankers a year on our fragile coastline in the Salish Sea. This all begs the question, could the same tragedy happen here in BC? I am joined now by Karen Riston. She's the executive director at Living Oceans. 
Living Oceans has co-authored reports about double-hulled tanker technology. They have an ongoing legal challenge against the federal government's approval of Kinder Morgan's oil tanker expansion. So Karen's got some pretty serious wisdom on the issues we're tackling today. Thanks so much, Karen, for joining us. My pleasure. So this Sanchi oil tanker that sunk off the East China Sea was a double-hulled oil tanker. Uh, How similar was this ship to the ones that travel in and out of Kinder Morgan's Westridge Marine Terminal on Burrard Inlet? It would have been quite similar to them. The Sanchi was fairly recently built, 2008, as I recall. So it would have been built to the new double-hulled standard and uh, of a size similar to, probably smaller than what uh, Kinder Morgan is hoping to use here. Yeah. Uh, So often when we talk about potential spill risk on the BC coast, I think of the infamous Exxon Valdez, uh, which we know is single-hulled, you know, only had one layer between the water and the cargo. Uh, Kinder Morgan likes to tell us that its double-hulled tankers are safe. Um, How safe are these double-hulled tankers actually? Well, certainly safer than a single-hulled tanker, although, you know, the experts who examined the Exxon Valdez after the accident said with what happened to that, <clears throat> had it been a double-hull tanker, it might have spilled 25% less than what it did, but that boat ripped its bottom open. Um, if a double-hull tanker were to ground in similar circumstances, it would too. So the question is just how many of the tanks do you actually rupture when you ground? They're, they're safer, but not impervious. Yikes. Let's talk about like the waters of Burrard Inlet. Um, what do you think the risk is like based on, you know, the route that Kinder Morgan's tankers would have to travel as opposed to this this open ocean accident off the coast of China? Well, you've got to think after having been through an entire supposed environmental assessment of the project that I'd have a real snappy answer for that. But the truth is we've had no accurate assessment of what the, the risk is in Burrard Inlet. The um, figures that were bandied about by Kinder Morgan to deal with the question of tanker risk did not look at what is actually going on in Burrard Inlet. The volume of traffic here is already enormous. It's increasing by the day as new projects come online. And the thought that we could safely add that many more tankers to the comings and goings, particularly through the two narrows, is is ridiculous. So I can't give you a number for, for risk because there is no good number that's been developed. But I should think it's high. Yikes, because we never even had a proper review of what the risk was. Oh, boy. No. Um, well, what they do is they use numbers that have been derived from every mile failed by every tanker over the entire surface of the globe and the number of accidents, and they count, calculate the risk based on that. Well, that's ludicrous. You need to calculate the risk in a port based on the traffic in the port. And this is a pretty busy port, and as I say, getting getting busier every day. Yeah. Uh, Let's talk about what these tankers are carrying, because I think there's some important differences we should acknowledge there. So we know the Sanchi spilled condensate. Uh, How different is that than what we could expect, say, with a diluted bitumen spill, heaven forbid, in the Salish Sea? Uh, A diluted bitumen spill would be a much, much heavier product than what what Sanchi was carrying. Diluted bitumen will tend to sink under the surface of the water within about 12 to 24 hours, according to our expert evidence. Um, It could do that faster on a nasty day when there's lots of energy in the ocean. It might lay on the surface longer on a a dead, quiet summer day. 
that it's going to sink, and once it sinks, it's impossible to track. So it will be traveling on ocean currents, and it will wash up wherever those currents fetch up, and it will oil beaches all over the place. Horrifying. It is. Yeah. Um, So with an accident like this, you know, what we saw with Sanchi was the largest oil tanker spill in a quarter of a century. Um, A lot of the scientists are talking about longer term impacts on the marine environment, say threat to the whale population that um, is off the coast of China. Um, I know that's something Living Oceans has worked on a lot. So could you tell us a bit more about the risk of Kinder Morgan's tanker project to the whales we have here on the south coast of B.C.? Yes, the the risk is several fold actually. Yes. There's a direct risk, first of all, of tanker strikes. Um, particularly, juvenile whales seem to have trouble getting out of the way of uh, fast moving vehicles, and tankers tend to move relatively quickly relative to the rest of the traffic around here. We know that um, a, an awful lot of the recent whale deaths that have been reported in Canada have been attributed to tanker strikes. So that's the first and most obvious one. There are more subtle impacts, though. Those tankers are quite noisy. And with some, I don't know, 800 tanker trips through the Salish Sea being added by this new project, we're going to have a great deal of noise in the critical habitat of the whales. This is the place where they have to be able to communicate, to hunt, and to nurse their young. And so that is going to put them off their feed, quite literally, and possibly frighten them out of the area. That's not going to be um, at all helpful for a population of whales that's already starving to death. There will also be subtle effects that will impact the fish. We're learning more and more every day about the impact that noise has on fish, and that may cause the whale's main prey to um, leave the region, to leave the critical feeding area. That won't be good either. Nope. In terms of... (laughs) In terms of the oil spill, um, we know relatively little about how whales are impacted except when they surface directly in the spill, which unfortunately they seem to have a habit of doing. Um, they've been observed, uh, as have other cetaceans, been observed um, rising up within the parameters of a spill, seemingly unable to detect that it's there before they hit the surface. And when they do that, um, their skin is affected. They begin to absorb the toxins in the oil through their skin. And at least in the case of the Exxon Valdez, an entire pod disappeared after being observed to rise in, in, the, uh, in the oil. Yikes. So we're yeah. still waiting to see what some of those impacts will be on the whales off the coast of China. But that sounds pretty terrifying when you think of the, the whale population here off, off our coast in B.C. Yes, the impacts on the whales in the East China Sea will be a little different because the condensate has a tendency to mix into the water column. So um, they'll be impacted um, at greater depth and for longer periods of time than they would be with a, with a spill just floating on the surface. Also, the fish will be contaminated, and so they'll be looking at um, contaminated feed sources. So they're likely to suffer greater impact and over a longer period of time. Yikes. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Karen, for for shedding a light on on some of this for us. Is there anything else you you would like to say about uh, the Sanchi spill uh, as it relates to the Kinder Morgan project? Well, not necessarily specifically as it relates to Kinder Morgan, but uh, as it relates to the tanker moratorium that's Mm. being proposed by Canada. 
it wouldn't protect us from a spill of the material that Sanchi was carrying. It's not designed to deal with condensate and the lighter oils, only with the heavy ones. And it's not designed to deal with small, smaller shipments of those heavy oils. And they can be every bit as devastating as we saw in Halsey territory last year um, as a large spill. So we need that tanker moratorium and we need it beefed up. Absolutely. That is a perfect transition because our next guest will be Hiltzik Councillor Jess Housey to speak exactly about some of those risks that um, we're seeing up in the central and north coast and in Hiltzik waters. Thank you so much, Karen. Our federal politicians seem to be banking on this, quote, world-class spill response. Hiltzik Councillor Jess Housey knows firsthand what BC's spill response actually looks like. On October 13th, 2016, the Nathan E. Stewart ran aground in the Seaforth Channel in Hiltzik Territory. Jess is an elected councillor with the Hiltzik First Nation, and she served as her community's incident commander during the Nathan E. Stewart response. Thank you so much, Jess, for, for taking the time to chat with us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so maybe just to start off, can you tell us a bit about, uh, about that night when the Nathan E. Stewart ran aground uh, near Bella Bella? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a night that's burned into my memory. It was one of the most chaotic, traumatic days, I think, that our community has ever experienced. Um, we woke up very early in the morning to a belated relay from the Coast Guard um, that this incident was unfolding. Community members were glued to their VHF radios, listening to you know the bits of conversation that you could pick up from Bella Bella. And we were all waiting with our hearts and our mouths looking at the terrible weather, uh, hoping that the worst wouldn't happen. But, of course, it did. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the worst did happen. A lot of fuel was spilled into the water. Um, based on your experience with what this response was, was, was any part of it world-class? No, we kept waiting for the world-class flow response to happen. And, you know, while I, I do think that uh, past the really chaotic first 72 hours, in which it seemed like no one had any idea what they were doing, um, be- beyond that, I do think that people made their best effort, but it was really clear that best effort get you nowhere when you're dealing with actual weather conditions. People were talking about techniques that maybe work in bathtub conditions, but we would have sometimes three or four days in a row where the water was so high and the winds were so high that we couldn't even safely deploy boats to the scene. Um, so the reality is, you know, the, the techniques that you test in a lab or that you, you develop for perfect conditions, um, those conditions never materialize in an actual response. Justin Trudeau has since proposed this ocean protections plan. Um, finally, after a couple years in government, they put forward um, a tanker ban for the for the central and north coast. Um, what would you actually like to see from from the government to make sure something like this never happens again? Well, you know, I think people gave Trudeau and his government a lot of credit for the tanker ban. Um, I don't think the tanker ban is harmful. I don't think it goes nearly far enough. Um, when you read through the actual content, it's clear that on a bunch of different counts, it wouldn't even have prevented the Nathan Stewart disaster if it had been in place. It doesn't apply to boats that size. It doesn't apply to vessels that are carrying the kind of fuel it was carrying. It doesn't apply to vessels that are originating in U.S. ports and not stopping at Canadian ports. You know, there's lots of reasons why it wouldn't have had any impact on the situation that we faced. And just this past fall, um, a little over a year after the Nathan Stewart, of course, we had... Uh, 
um, a near miss with a Jake Shearer articulated tug barge, a very similar vessel to the Nathan E. Stewart that lost power off a reef and held the territory in a huge storm. Um, that fuel tanker was, that fuel barge was full um, with millions of liters of fuel. And again, you know, none of the strides that the federal government has made since the Nathan E. Stewart would have prevented that second near miss either. Um, so as the health community, we're sitting there in our waters watching these, these vessels full of fuel go by and hearing people um, cheering on the Trudeau government for the steps they're taking while we're recognizing that actually it's not any safer to be where we are. Our, our territory isn't any safer than it was before. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, we saw another example of a oil tanker spill um, about 300 kilometers from Shanghai, the Sanchi. Um, and one of the things that folks are talking about out there is risks of contamination from all the condensate that was spilled to the seafood that, that folks in China or Japan depend on. Um, I know that's mm-hmm. one of the, the major impacts your community is still facing from the Nathan E. Stewart. Uh, can you tell us a bit about how your community is monitoring that ongoing situation, responding, uh, how it's been impacting your food sources? Yeah, I mean, that's been one of the most devastating aspects of the fallout of the spill is, you know, the area where the Nathan E. Stewart went down um, we call it the breadbasket of our community. It's the place that most of our families harvested most of their seafood that they still rely on. You know, the, the cost of living and the cost of freighting groceries into Bella is pretty astronomical. And lots of families still depend really heavily on what they can harvest from what's around us uh, to be able to feed their families. And the reality is, you know, after the Nathan Stewart, there are dozens of marine and intertidal species that we can't harvest anymore. We don't know when we're going to be able to harvest them again. One of the things that's been incredibly frustrating for the nation is that there hasn't been nearly the level of effort put into monitoring um, the toxicity that we would have expected after an incident like this. So most of the sampling and most of the testing that's happened since the spill has actually been done by HealthSix on HealthSix time because we're concerned about the welfare of our community. It's not being done by the province. It's not being done by the feds. certainly not being done by the company. Uh, and we can't seem to get people to the table to have a serious conversation about what a robust environmental assessment would look like in the wake of this incident. Whoa. Yikes. Um, yeah, I mean, your community has demonstrated just such incredible leadership. And um, obviously, we would hope for a situation where you have to bear less of the, the brunt of this alone. Um, is there anything that folks who aren't up in Bella Bella can do to, to support your community right now? And, you know, obviously this ongoing response um, to what, what happened a couple of years back almost, but, you know, also your, your efforts, say, with your um, Marine Response Center you're proposing. Is there anything you'd like to ask of our podcast listeners? I think the, the more people can do to help elevate the, the good, positive solutions and the difficult stories coming out of our communities in situations like this, um, you know, the, the greater the likelihood is that we'll be able to see movement on those issues. Uh, you know, we were incredibly grateful during the spill itself um, for that six-week emergency phase that the general public and Dogwood and so many other allies were so wonderful about elevating the news that we were sharing um, to wider audiences and amplifying the story of what was happening because I don't think that there would have been nearly as much attention and public pressure as we saw 
if that hadn't been happening you know, with the support of the people who care about us. And as we're picking up the pieces and moving on and thinking about uh, the steps that we can take to prevent things like this from happening again, you know, we have put a lot of work into the proposals for a health-led marine response center. Um, you know, we don't see that as an invitation to increase uh, fuel traffic on the coast. We see it as a necessary measure to mitigate the risks posed by existing shipping traffic on the coast. And I think the more people are getting the word out about the importance of that and the importance of community-led processes rooted in local knowledge, um, the better. Makes total sense. You know, yeah. <laughs> expanding the traffic of dangerous vessels is definitely not the answer, and we need to be investing in um, health sector or Indigenous-led response to the existing traffic that is ongoing through your waters. Um, those are all the questions I have. Do you have anything else that um, you would like to say to our to our listeners? Sure. Thank you for everything you've already done to support all of the good work that's happening. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jess. Um, we'll talk yeah. to you really soon. Okay, take care. We decided to produce this podcast based on a blog that my dogwood teammate Dave Mills wrote last week. Dave was shocked that British Columbians weren't getting adequate news about the Sanchi situation. He's joining us on the line now from his home in Courtney on Vancouver Island. Hey, Dave. Hello, Sophie. Hello. Thank you for joining us. No problem. Uh, so on this podcast so far, we've gotten to talk to experts about um, Sanchi spill and how it exposes potentially risks we're facing here on the BC coast from the Kinder Morgan expansion, bringing double-hull tankers that maybe aren't as safe as we would hope they'd be, um, to the ongoing oil tanker traffic on the central and north coast of BC, as Jess pointed out, and how our spill response maybe isn't quite so world-class. Um, but aside from the blog you wrote, and maybe a couple posts on um, Twitter by various environmental NGOs or concerned citizens, um, nobody seems to be talking much about the Sanchi sinking. There's been very little media coverage coming out of Canada. BC journalists have been silent. Finally, last week, we thought we were getting somewhere when we saw CBC's The Current did an episode about the Sanchi spill last week, um, which, to their credit, attempted to dig into the topic. We have a clip from that. Is there a lesson here? Um, you know, Canada's got a lot of ports. Is there something Canada should be learning from this as well? That's a great question. And the answer to that is absolutely. The Sanchi should be a wake-up call for Canada, in particular, BC and Alberta. Uh, condensate is coming into Canada now by pipeline and tanker. About 180,000 barrels a day are coming on through, pipe, through the Southern Lights pipeline, the Enbridge pipeline from Illinois up to Alberta. If Northern Gateway gets built over to Kitimat, that would be about the same amount of condensate coming in. So we know that Northern Gateway Pipeline was canceled. This oil tanker project has been off the table since 2016. So here's a question I've got for you, Dave, to start us off. Why is the media not talking about it and the ones that are aren't making the connection to the current threat we're facing on the BC coast from Kinder Morgan's oil tanker expansion? Yeah, I was really surprised to not see this story hit the newspapers at all mm -hmm. in any meaningful way. I mean, it's happening in the ocean we all share, in the ocean we all depend on, and it's so intimately linked 
to the Kinder Morgan approval process, i.e. spill safety and the management of risk is one of the key factors that the National Energy Board considered when they approved the project. So yeah, it's an interesting question. Why isn't this part of the media's coverage on this issue? And I think for me, it boils down to a couple things. First would be perhaps media literacy, and the second may be a bit of institutional bias. But I think it's also important to recognize that there is a cloud hanging over all media in Canada. Mm. You know, there's a real scarcity of resources that media companies can deploy to properly cover issues like how projects are approved, how risk is assessed, what that actually means for everyday people. Mm -hmm. So on the literacy side of things, like that's where the media gets my sympathy. Because if you imagine trying to digest hundreds and hundreds of pages on risk assessment methodology and how these companies come up with a number that explains what the actual risk is, you really have to go deep. And that, that was a point I was really trying to bring out in my blog. And you actually read those reports, right, Dave? I did. Um, many years ago, I uh, participated with the uh, Tofino Long Beach Chamber of Commerce on their submission to the National Energy Board hearings on Kinder Morgan. Mm -hmm. So we really dug into how risk assessment methodology is uh, characterized, and it's it's very similar, actually, to the professional reliance issue that British Columbians are grappling with right now, in that the National Energy Board pretty much lets the company come up with their own assessment of risk. And so what Kinder Morgan did was they hired a large multinational company called Debt Norse Veritas, who, you know, poured over completely unfamiliar data i.e. there is very little data on tanker activity on the coast of Canada. They came up with an assessment based on pretty much inconclusive information, i.e. We, we haven't had a double-hulled tanker sinking on the West Coast. Mm. So to come up with an apples-to-apples apples comparison for them is quite difficult. But nonetheless, they did. And as you probably read in my blog, it's like one in every 1,300 years. That is the chance that they assign to a tanker striking a rock and jettisoning, jettisoning one-sixth of its cargo. That seems really low to me, especially given that we just saw a really massive spill and a massive oil tanker spill before that just a couple decades before, hey? Yeah, uh, and, you know, the, the thing that struck me about the Sanchi incident, this is like an open ocean collision where two ships strike each other for reasons yet to be determined. And these double-hulled tankers, which have all their compartments separated within them, which are supposed to be so safe, the worst-case scenario accepted by the NEB was only one of those compartments breaking, whereas here out in the open ocean, we have a collision that results in the entire tanker losing its cargo. You have the resources of China and Japan fully deployed. They can't contain any of it. They can't prevent the tanker from sinking. And this is in the open ocean. Imagine the scenario 
inside the BC waterways, Harrow Strait, which is fewer than five kilometers wide. In my mind, the risk goes through the roof in comparison. Yeah. So what is somebody who lives on the coast to do about the situation when, you know, maybe a few of us, now the folks listening to this podcast, hey y'all, um, are aware of this oil spill that happened off the coast of China, how much it's exposing the risks we're facing here in BC. What would you suggest regular folks do in a situation like this where our neighbors, you know, just aren't hearing this story covered in on the news, on the radio, in the paper, any of that? Yeah, that's a good question. We're taking a good stab at digging deeper into this. So when people do take the time to dig deeper in blogs and in podcasts, like share that information for sure. The other uh, topic of conversation I would bring up with uh, a friend or a neighbor is is to remind them of of what Trudeau said when he campaigned for our vote in the last election. Mm. And he was really equivocal about redoing the review. That's what he said. The other thing he said was communities grant permission. And now he's coming to Vancouver Island just later this week to face perhaps the first unscripted questions in a town hall he'll actually get from British Columbians. Yeah, so if I had the opportunity to ask the Prime Minister a question, I would be asking him questions about Kinder Morgan specifically. They connect the dots to a whole bunch of issues from climate change to community decision-making, to Indigenous rights and title, I would, I would ask the Prime Minister directly, why didn't you follow through on your promise to redo the review for Kinder Morgan? I would love to hear the answer to that. Thank you so much, Dave. Anything else you want to tell our listeners before I let you get on with your day? Keep your eyes on the news, on Twitter, on our blogs, on our podcasts. We'll do our best to get that information out. And when we get it out, share it amongst your networks. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dave. No problem. Have a great day. That's it for our January 2018 episode of the Dogwood Podcast. What do you think of the new format? We'd love to hear from you. Shoot us a message. Send us a tweet at DogwoodBC. Or give us a rating on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever it is that you are listening to my voice from. And hey, if you really like this, please help us get the message out and share this podcast with your friends and family. This is Sophie coming from the Dogwood office in Burnaby, BC. And you know, every day when I take a break from work, I go for a walk behind our office and I see Kinder Morgan's construction at their oil tanker terminal right now on Burrard Inlet. Um, this threat of a seven-fold increase of Dilbit tankers in the Salish Sea is real. Uh, and if the media is not going to talk about it, we need to get the word out to our friends ourselves. So thanks for listening. Pass it on. And hey, if you're like me and you're pretty riled up about this oil spill that happened a couple weeks ago uh, on the other side of the Pacific, why not take this opportunity to get in touch with your elected officials? You can send Justin Trudeau a message on his visit to BC this week. Or if you want to get in touch with the Premier, you can send him an email yourself at www.notankers.ca. That's all for today. Catch you next time.